Uh, diving into picture this week number four. Now these messages I realize are, have been really different for us. Normally I take a text and I dissect it, but what we're talking about here in these weeks is really an idea. And uh, it's God's heart for a really big idea being the future. I like to stay in one passage and just kind of teach that way, but I'm discovering that when I, when I teach this way, I oftentimes actually use a ton more scripture because I really want the Lord's heart for the whole of what we're talking about. So if you open the notes, they're quite lengthy. We'll probably get through all of those today, and if not, your money will be cheerfully refunded. It's okay. Picture this. We are talking today about our future, personally, our own, yours, mine, and as a church. We do not talk with enough intentionality about the future. We don't. We talk about the future as if it's hiding in the closet and it's going to jump out at us and we don't know when and we don't know how and we don't know why. It's just going to happen to us. Even though everybody thinks about it. Everybody ponders, what's going to happen? How, what's it going to be like? What's going forward? As if it's going to arrive at our home delivered by Amazon with a gift receipt. We don't even know where it came from. How did we get to this? Nothing could be further from the truth. Your future, personally, and our future as a church body is one that with the leading and the strength of the Lord, we build brick by bit, brick, reaction by reaction, response by response on a day-to-day -day basis. We very much make our own future. Have you ever found yourself in a situation and said, how did I get here? It's like, what, how, what? Now, there are things that happen to us that you could never anticipate. But there are many things where the better question would be to ask your friends, how did I get here? Because they can tell you how you got there. You made 10 dumb decisions. It wasn't easy to get where you are. We often prepare our own future. This afternoon, most of you will go home, you'll have a meal. What will that meal be made of? It will be made of whatever you prepared before you left. Some of you are like, I'm having cereal. Yeah, because you prepared nothing. Okay? If you, nobody's going to go home today and have Cornish hens if you haven't thought about it already. Has anybody ever actually had Cornish hens? Really? Okay. It just seems like a very fancy thing. Next time you make them, call me. No. You don't, those things don't happen by accident. Okay? You make your future. Now, not everyone sits around plotting about the future, but those who don't pay a price. People without the willingness to think about the future don't have much of a future. The present is not enough motivation for us to put one foot in front of the other. It's not motivating enough to say, time to get up, today will be like yesterday was. It's just, it's not enough for us. We've got to think about the future. And if we don't think about the future, we tend to give up. The church, the portion of the church that has disengaged from the idea of eschatology or the study of the end times, understanding where we are going, is largely a church of inactivity. Because it's hard to lead people when you're not telling them where you're going. On the micro side, the person who doesn't have hope in the future has no hope at all. That's where hope resides. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, your hope is not in today. Your hope is out there. And he's working on that. And you are helping form that by your own decisions and your own heart postures and your own activity. Christ completes the work, but we invest as well. Now, we may be put in $1 and he puts in 500 
But he puts 500 in towards we put our one in. And he watches where we invest. Those deposits begin with decisions. Current decisions affect future events. That sounds so simple, but most people don't think about it when they live day to day. And they don't realize that the decisions they're making now will affect their future. You can actually sow success into your future by the decisions you make today. Psalm 16.3, Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. By our actions and God's grace, the future is secured. So we've talked about faith for the future. We've talked about favor and why God rests on some people with favor and what that's all about. Last week we turned a corner. We began to talk about our future as a group. We talked about evangelism. There is no future of the church without evangelism. And if you missed it, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that message about how we think and talk about how people come to the Lord. It may be a little bit differently than, than you've thought about it. Maybe give you some things to, to kind of ponder. This week, as we progress talking about the future, I need you to dream with me a little bit. And I need you to grow comfortable talking about what will be without saying, well, it's not like that yet. Okay? If we don't talk about how it will be, it never will. This is where the uniqueness of our origins as a church family really show themselves. In a conventional church plant, you work behind the scenes to make everything as perfect as you possibly can, and then you throw open the doors with complete systems and huge banners and everything is perfect, and if you haven't noticed, we didn't get started that way. And we're not there yet. We are very much in the building in the starting phase. We morphed into a family over time. We didn't really realize that's where we were going. A good friend of mine told me recently, he said, you are really in a church plant mentality. You're really kind of just gathering your core group right now. You're really running up the flag, up the flagpole and saying, this is who we'll be, who we'll rally to it. And what you find yourself in here this morning is not a fully established, fully mature thing. It is a pioneer work. And not everybody's a pioneer. There are settlers. But when settlers come, they look around, they go, where's the general store? The pioneers go, oh, we're going to build that. And so this is a pioneer work. And I realize for some of you that's horrifying and others it's very exciting. But this is a pioneer phase where we, we say this is what we will be. And so today we're talking about the future, what we're called to build and to set the table. Let me just read a passage from Psalm 78, 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell it to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders what he is, that he has done. The speaker here, is, it's interesting, we've talked about this guy a couple times in the last few weeks. He, he's not mentioned really very many places. The speaker is Asaph. He is a psalmist who served under both David and Solomon, okay? So Asaph, he worked in David's tent, but he also worked in Solomon's temple. He worked at a bridge time in history where one generation handed off to the other. He saw that David made decisions that set Solomon, his son, up for success. And he saw that Solomon had an energy on the things that made David's dreams come true. 
So when he talks about the dark sayings, he's not talking about evil. He's talking about things that are really hard to understand. And he goes on to tell these stories and elaborate on the mysteries of God from the perspective of one who has been both in the tent and in the temple. He said, I saw this transfer from one generation to the next and I saw it grow. And what does it say that he does with those dark or hard sayings or parables? He doesn't gather a think tank. He doesn't get the theologians together. He literally says, we learned this from our fathers. We're going to pass it down to our children. Faith can be transferred generationally in a way that knowledge cannot. And he said, we're going to set our hearts that our children will know the things that we learn from our fathers. Asaph, who had rich personal experience of that kind of transfer, saw the telling and the retelling of stories of God as a key part of the extension of their faith. He saw the present had been written by those who had gone before him by the choices that they made. And so this morning, I want to talk about a value, really a conviction, is that we would be a multi-generational church. Now, in our culture, this idea is more radical than you might understand. It's not cute. It's actually quite aggressive. 20 years ago, I read a book that made me think of church planting in a way that I had never thought about it before. In Bible college, I thought church planters were guys that couldn't get churches. Like, so they'd go start their own. 20 years later, I realized, no, 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 guys who church plant are guys that couldn't bear taking an established church, and they went and started their own. Like, why would you take one when you can plant one? But back then, 20 years ago, I read a book by Rick Warren, who that talked about his planting of Saddleback. Now, Rick, over the years, has strangely come under some criticism. I really find it strange because he's a very middle-of-the-road, non-controversial guy. I think at some point when, when you get large, you become a, a target for critics. And, and a lot of criticism towards him has been just a little bit nuts. Uh, Rick is a guy who, when he had a best-selling book after 20 years of pastoring Saddleback, when his first royalty checks came in for his book, he turned around and repaid his church for 20 years of salary reimbursed his church for everything they'd ever paid him. And as he started and wrote about starting Saddleback, they did something that had really not been done very often before. They came up with a character that they call Saddleback Sam. Saddleback Sam was their target market. They could describe Saddleback Sam. They knew how old he was. They know what kind of job he had. They knew what his income was, all the way down to the cargo shorts that he wore. Like they had a drawing of this guy. And they went after Saddleback Sam with a real intentionality. And it worked. Up until then, most churches had gathered around an idea or a theology rather than a customer. And that started a trend for many, many years. And through the 90s and into the 2000s, we saw churches develop that were developed after a niche market rather than a theology or an idea. Many of them are great churches. Many of my friends pastor churches like this. Young adult churches where if you're over about 30, you're, like, you're a fossil. But our calling as a bridge family, our future, if we choose to build it, is different than that. And I would say a little more difficult and a lot more counterculture. I believe it is richer in the long run and that calling is for us to be multi-generational. In my mind, I see a hair, I see a group of blue-haired people. Some of them are old. Some of them are young. 
But the old blue-haired people sit next to the young blue-haired people whose hair is blue for very different reasons. And they worship together and the Lord sees that. I want both groups. I don't see a narrow target market. We don't have a Saddleback Sam. We don't have a Bridge Bob. We don't have that. We have a hunger to, as a family to worship together. And to me, this is not a strategy. This is a conviction. I'm not against strategy. We need strategy. I need more than I have. My wife is a much better strategic person, person than I am. But a conviction runs deeper than a strategy. Strategies change over time. Convictions stick. And the bridge is a family model that I want to see stretch across generations. For me, it's a conviction. And convictions become values. And values become behaviors. Let me just elaborate on this, this idea of it being a conviction. It starts with a passage for me, maybe one of the most read passages in bridge history. We go back to this a lot. We will continue to go back to this a lot. It's in Malachi, and it speaks of the coming of the Lord in a very poetic way that alludes to John the Baptist and Jesus' first coming and his return. I know that we are familiar with this life and we think this is all there is, but the, the season we live in really is just a sliver in eternity. And in chapter 4, Malachi speaks with great prophetic unction about the sliver that we find ourselves in. And he starts the chapter like this, Malachi 4.1, For behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is a season when all of those who shake their fist at God down through history and say, why doesn't God do something? Suddenly God does something. And many of those who wanted him to do something realized, oh, I didn't know he was going to do that. So it's a very intense season. But at the very end of the chapter, he gives us a bit of instruction and one could say this is some of the most specific instruction in the Bible. Lots of instruction through Scripture that applies to all people. Lots of Scripture that applies to certain groups of people. In this case, he talks about people who are alive at a very narrow sliver of time. And understand, when I say narrow sliver, don't think six weeks, okay? Don't even think five years. But your lifetime, the lifetimes of us and our parents, still in the history of all humanity is a narrow sliver in all eternity. So he's speaking to people in the sliver that we live in. Malachi 4 verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now those of you with critical minds, I don't mean critical spirits, but those with critical minds who ask questions, I am one of you, go... Well, if he says he's going to send Elijah the prophet, how can you say this applies to now? Like, where's Elijah? You're not the first person to ask this question, okay? They asked Jesus about what the return of Elijah looked like. In Mark 9, 11 to 13, he's, they asked him, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Who is he talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and now John the Baptist is separated from his head. Like that's where that led, but that was John the Baptist. 
Matthew 11, 13 to 15 says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The spirit of Elijah rested on John the Baptist. One was a shadow of things to come. The other was the fulfillment. So if we're living in these days, let's go back to the admonition. What did Malachi say would happen in that season? Malachi 4.6. I believe this is the season that we're living in. We may be in it for decades, but it's where we're at. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children... And the children, parts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Some passages or some versions say, lest I strike the land with a curse. He says there will be an intergenerational turning of hearts, one generation to the other. It will be reciprocal. It won't be just one generation pouring out one way. And if we can figure that one out, we will be blessed. And if we don't set our hearts towards that, we will be cursed. Some people go, well, what's the curse? Which curse do you want? Like, I mean, of all the curses, which one would you say, oh, that's a good trade, I'll take the curse. Under no circumstance do I want the curse, whatever it is. So if this passage leads our conviction, hearts of the fathers turning towards children, hearts of children turning towards fathers, what is the value that comes out of that? The value is building a place where each generation respects and honors the other in a way that reflects the relationship between the son and the father. Now, it'd be hard to find anybody who will actually argue against that. But it's not as easy to find as it is to argue for. Because especially as the wheels of time grind forward, the greatest divide in our culture will not be rich versus poor. It won't even be racial. The greatest divide in our culture, and we are moving there rapidly, is generational. It's baked into how we operate. We expect it. Entire sitcoms run five and six years of material based on that one idea. That the generations are turned against each other. Movies are made with that premise. The generations are, are turned against each other. Generations look at things, the same things, differently. And society has capitalized that to drive them apart. And now we think it's normal. Where we are going, it can't be normal. The generations cannot be divided. It's obvious in simple, funny ways, and it's obvious in serious ways. Generations look at things differently. Monday night, it began to snow on the southern frontier of Overland Park. Begin to snow hard. Not New York hard, Sean and, and Jenna. Sean and Jenna moved here from upstate New York where they got 72 inches of snow just in the last couple days, so they're exceptionally glad to be with us today. Didn't snow that hard, but it began to snow. I do not like snow. I do not like it in the street. I do not like it where we meet. <laughs> do not like it in the yard. I do not like it snowing hard. I'll go full on Dr. Seuss. I don't like snow. And my kids were delighted with it. Man, their nose up against the glass. It's snowing, it's snowing, it's snowing. They thought it was beautiful. And they were all excited about snowballs and snow forts and doing all the things kids do. My kids saw it as an opportunity to go outside and play. Thought it was fantastic. 
I saw it as an opportunity for them to completely trash the basement with boots and snow gear and all the stuff that comes out and doesn't go back. Generationally, we looked at that very differently. Who's right? Both of us. Yes, they had fun, and yes, they trashed the basement. But that idea of look at th looking at things differently as gener one generation or the other, it's, it's true of cute little things, but it's also true of very serious things. You open your news app, you flip through it, almost every news article you will find, an 18-year-old will look at it differently than a 70-year-old. They'll interpret it differently. Generations are divided. If you look at at things like uh, the recent vote in, in uh, Kansas City on legalization of marijuana. That vote, I guarantee you, was not necessarily split rich or poor or split Republican or Democrat. It was split young and old. Generationally, we see things differently. And the 70-year-old will dismiss the 18-year-old. You have no life experience. What could you possibly know? And the 18-year-old will dismiss the 70-year-old. You're just completely closed-minded. What could you possibly know? And this is only a turn signal indicator of a sharp corner to come where intergenerational conflict will be the primary context or the primary social structure on the earth. Right now it's, you know, sometimes it's comical, sometimes it's just residual. One day it will be a problem like we've never imagined as the pressures on the earth grow and generation turns against generation, which is why Malachi said, you've got to be intentional. And the older must turn towards the younger, and the younger must turn towards the older. The old ways of doing things will not work if we don't do that. Jesus is describing society as the gears of time grind to a close. And he says this in Luke 12, 53. They will be divided. How, are they, how is he going to divide them up? They will be divided, father against son, Son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He says they'll divide along generational lines. One of the most aggressive countercultural acts of warfare that we can conduct is to declare that we will not join this trend. Like, that may be the weirdest thing about us at the end of the age, is that we will not in indulge in the splitting of generations for convenience sake. So what does it look like? To be an intergenerational church means to enter in to the other generation's perspective and give it equal weight and honor as yours. Everybody loves this because they think when we do that, everybody will see it their way. You know? Oh, I'm glad that every generation's going to honor each other. Finally, they'll figure it out. Yeah, finally, you'll figure it out. Finally, I'll figure it out. In an, inter, in an intergenerational church, doesn't mean you get to be right just because of your experience. Doesn't mean you get, you get to be right just because of your enthusiasm. And others don't get to be silenced because of their lack of experience or their lack of connection to current trends. For the hearts of fathers and mothers to turn towards children, and for children to turn towards their fathers and mothers, and for that to work into our DNA means both groups are going to have to value and truly honor the other group. So if everybody is for this, why is it so hard to find? Like, you read this, it's like, let's do that. Why is it hard to find? It's hard to find because the devil doesn't like it. Let me give you two reasons or two ways the devil is fighting to destroy intergenerational ministry. Some of you are like, the devil is fighting to destroy that? You're getting a little paranoid. Actually, no. 
These are things that he actually does. I'm telling you, 33, 34 years into ministry, I have seen this over and over again. These are ideas he uses to destroy the idea that we are a family before we are anything else. And why does he fight so hard against it? Why would he care if the old and young gathered to worship together? It just looks too much like heaven for him. And it bothers him. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. What he is afraid of is a unified group of people crying out, Salvation belongs to our God. And what is more tribal in our culture than the generational divide? He is frightened when he sees people who are normally disconnected from one another joining their voices together saying salvation belongs to our God. I'm making the point here that we're not just working to overcome somebody's preferences of how you want to do church. We're engaging in spiritual warfare that was described at the end of the Old Testament, was described by Jesus about the age that we're in. A multi-generational church is not something that we get to say we are just because we like the sound of the idea. It's something that we have to say and have to be because the sound that comes out of it is a sound like heaven. Two ways that he fights against this. First is a consumer approach applied to family matters. A consumer approach applied to family matters. I was speaking with Banning Leapshire a while back from Jesus Culture. Banning was the youth pastor at Bethel, went to Sacramento to plant a church, took uh, about 150 people moved with him that 100 miles to start with Bethel's blessing. And, and they started with a bang. He'll, he'll tell you. It wasn't really a church plant con, uh, concept. We had a lot of people with us and we were nationally known and it probably would have worked almost anywhere. But he said, when we went there, the thing that he had to fight over and had to, he, like he preached over about it regularly, is the church is a family, not a business. And this is the language he uses. He says, God did not send his son to redeem employees. God did not send his son to redeem soldiers, even though there's a warfare aspect of it. God sent his son to redeem sons and daughters. And if we stand before God in this room as sons and daughters, it puts us in relationship to one another in a way that gives us different expectations and different grace for one another than if church was a business rather than a family. Everybody loves the sound of that, but we trend towards the opposite. We love the idea of church being a family, yet particularly as Westerners, we engage with what we expect from church, much like we engage with a business. Does it give me what I need for what I invest? And if I get my money's worth, that's the place for me. Never told the story before in public, which makes it a good one. No. Uh, years ago, different context. None of you here were there, okay? So just don't look around the room wondering who this was. Um, I have to back up just a second. I, I came from a tie-wearing tribe, okay? The, my, my people originally wore ties. And uh, for the first seven years in ministry, I, as a youth pastor, wore a tie to the office every day, okay? So we were hardcore, 
However hardcore you were, we were more so. And so that was my tribe. Well, then I discovered that that was like the body of Christ was bigger than the tie-wearing tribe. And when I stepped out of that context, I realized that maybe I was one of them, not one of them. And so for, you know, the last 25 years, what you get is what you get. This is it, okay? And uh, so I was in a different context, and a man came to me, um, older man, and he took me aside and he said, um, I love your preaching. I love your family. I love you. Which you know as a pastor, it's coming, right? I'll give you $500 if you will go buy other clothes to preach in. And I, like, you know how you hear things and you think, I've heard other words than were just said. I can't believe it. I'm sorry. He goes, I'll give you $500 if you go buy different clothes to preach in. You don't have to wear them any other time. And I'm thinking, $500? Now, to be quite fair, I'd probably just go buy two crazy pair of shoes and call it done, which would not make him happy. So I looked at him and I said, I, I'm not going to do that. He said, why not? And I said, because I can't bear the idea of waking up every Sunday morning and wondering if you're getting your money's worth. Like I said, I can't do that. Now, to his credit, 80-some years old, he comes to me six weeks later. I am humiliated that I did that. Like, like he went home and he thought about it. He thought about it. He's like, I'm so sorry. I, I love the guy. I mean, I totally respect him for, for looking back and going, yeah, I said so. We've all said dumb stuff, okay? My point is, he was thinking, this is the kind of church I want. I'm going to get my money's worth. I'm going to see if I can get the visual that I want because that's what I would do at any business. I would just pay a little more and get what I want. That's perfectly illogical in a business context, okay? But if our needs aren't being met, we think we can give a little more money and get the thing that we want, you're not thinking family, you're thinking business. And it's logical in a business context. I go where I'm happy in a business world. I go where, where the service is exactly the way I want it. But it's a church, it's a family, it's not a business. A business view of church actually robs you of the family blessing because you're only involved at the level to which you are financially invested in. And skipping from business to business till you get the service that you want may be okay, but Thursday on Thanksgiving, skipping from family to family in your subdivision till you get the experience you want would not be allowed. Can you imagine? Where are you going, honey? Next door. They got Cornish hens. You don't do that to your family. And I'm telling you, I, hear me. There are times when, under the direction of the Lord, people end up from one congregation to the other. Happens all the time. And, and we understand that. But if you're just looking for something a little better, you do know you're taking the dysfunction with you. We can't think of church like a business. It's a family. Jesus is so committed to this idea of family that he even talks about conflict in the context of family. Like even when we're fighting, he points out your family. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a what? A client? You've gained an associate? You've gained a brother. 
You cannot approach, approach church, either globally or locally, like consumers. You can't worship like consumers. You can't go, you know, at the end of the song, thumbs up, thumbs down. I mean, some of you visually are. We see it. But you shouldn't. You can't approach disagreement like consumers. He said, no, if your brother has a problem, he's like, you're family, you got to figure this out. And you can't disengage like consumers. I've had a sermon title rolling around in my head forever that I just don't have the nerve to use called Don't Ghost the Pastor. You know, where you just, all right, we're gone. Why? Because I get more, and, and maybe the Lord's leading you, go, but treat it like family. Have the discussion. Because what Jesus died for was not employees, it was sons and daughters. And any activity between us that doesn't reflect that reality means we are expecting and receiving less from our own church. It has got to be a family along with the benefits, the graces, the tolerances, and ultimately the commitments of family. The hearts of the fathers turn to children. The hearts of the children turn toward the fathers or we bring a curse on ourselves. I believe as pressures mount as we go near the end of the age to not do church multi-generationally is actually dangerous because we will inherit all of the flaws and all of the quirks of the one narrow generation that we're reaching and we have no way to correct it. The enemy works to apply a consumer approach to family matters and then capitalizes on our disappointment when it doesn't work. Second thing he does is he gets us to use 50-yard sights on a 400-yard shot. Say, what are you talking about? I remember as a kid sitting on the concrete porch in front of our farmhouse. Nearest neighbor was about a half mile to the east, but you had to drive a mile to get there. Another mile to the north, there was another neighbor couple of miles to the east or the, to the west to the east were other neighbors to the south there was like nothing to Nebraska there was like nobody down there there were only thing between us and the neighbors about six or eight miles away was an old abandoned farmhouse that nobody had lived in for 40 or 50 years it was it was a uh, a farmstead that, that failed it was about a quarter mile away and I remember as a kid spending Saturday evenings in North Dakota, exciting place, sitting there on the porch with a rifle hitting that house. And I remember when Kelsey was first there, she was like, you can't hit that. I'm like, oh, yes, so I can. And sure enough, if you hit it, there were three cracks. There was a crack when you pulled the trigger. There was a crack when the bullet hit the house. And then you hear the echo off the trees behind the house. You hear bang, bang, bang. She's like, wow, you can't hit it. Yeah, I can't hit it. But you shot at that differently than you shot at something that was 50 yards away. You had to think a little bit about how much the bullet was going to drop. You had to think a little bit about wind. But it, it was possible to do. The devil is getting many of us to think about eternity, the long shot, with short sights. And we're going to miss the mark. He said, no, no, no. When I'm, what I'm building in the way of family is a long game. And you have to think about it that way. Eternity, the focal point of the church, is a long game. Being short-sighted causes us to make decisions based on what serves us best in the moment and gives us a quick return, but it causes us often to miss the mark. The church that chooses to pursue being multi-generational is one that is thinking about the long game. When older generations look towards the younger and honor them, that's the long game. When younger generations look towards the older and honor them, that's the long game. We need each other, not for what happens till tomorrow. Tomorrow we're probably going to be fine. But what happens eternally, we need one another. And I'm not building for what happens tomorrow. 
I'm building for a kingdom that never ends. Not our kingdom, but his. So we have to think about it that way. Listen to this passage in Psalms when it talks about the building of the house of God and the value that he puts on generations. It's like he can't think about building for God without thinking about different generations. Psalm 127, 1 through 4. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. And immediately goes in, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So he says, unless the Lord builds the bridge, we build it in vain. Like unless he's in it, it's never going to go anywhere. He tells him, trust me in this building process. But he also extols the honor of a younger generation. You want to build something that lasts? If you want me to build with you, you've got to honor the young ones. So he's building and he's extolling the value of these arrows to go beyond the generation that he's talking to. He says, those of you that are hearing me, yeah, hear me, but realize you're pouring into arrows that will go over your life's horizon to a place where you never will be. I've said it before. Kelsey and I are playing the long game. All right, we are aiming for 150 years out when there are more bullenders with our family spiritual DNA than you know how to count. And the descendants of those who look at us now and say, what a nut, will be saying they must have been geniuses. No, we're just playing the long game. He also described honor going back the other direction. If you look at Exodus 20, 12, God very intentionally says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. He says, if you want to shoot for the long game, for a long life, for long impact, both the older to the younger and the younger to the older, there's got to be a flow of honor and respect back and forth. If we want to hit the mark for eternity, if we want to sit on the porch of our life and make a mark where somewhere thinks we, nobody thinks we ever could affect life, it's going to be because we do it as a family, not as a narrow niche of individuals. It's consumeristic and it is short-sighted to build a church that does not honor the generations. And we're not going to do it. About four years ago, I was in San Francisco and had a conversation with uh, a man I quote a lot, John Tyson, pastors in New York City. And we were talking about this idea of multi-generational ministry and how hard it is. And John has this knack for taking really hard concepts and just boiling them down to be really simple. And he's got a great Australian accent, which makes it even sound smarter. I can't do the accent, but I can tell you what he told me. He said, older people want legacy. They want to believe that their life matters. They're coming to the end of their days and they say, I don't want to have wasted my time. I want some time down the road for it to say that what they believe matters. Older people want legacy. Younger people want destiny. They want to be called into an activity. They've got 40, 50, 60 years ahead of them. They're saying, show me what I can put my hand to do that's going to make a difference. So they, it's, they have what, what seems to be differing values here. John said, it only works when the older people see the young people's destiny as their own legacy. Those of you that are later in life, I'll let you draw that line wherever it is. <laughs> Those of you that are later in life, the legacy that you could leave involves the destiny of those that are younger in the room. 
And if you can help them get there, you have what really you long for in your heart. And those of you who are younger that are looking at decades of impact, you're sitting in some cases next to people who have had decades of impact. Where do you think you're going to learn that? Heaven forbid we're all 25 years old. If you're 25, we're really glad you're here. You bring an energy and a vibrancy. We need you. We need your friends. But you also need some perspective. And together we can be something we couldn't be any other way. Now I told you at the beginning this was a conviction. Convictions become values. Values become behaviors. Really quickly I want to hit two behaviors and, and we'll be out of here. The first one is a radical intentional grace towards other generations that we worship with. Remember the teeter-totter from last week? Most of you don't because everybody was out. So the, both, the two of you that were here, do you remember the teeter-totter from last week? Between grace and expectations, when there's high grace, expectations are low. And when there's high expectations, grace is very low. We are looking at, towards one another. We've got it as family members with, with high grace. We're going to treat each other that way. When it comes to worship and teaching style, if we do worship right, it's going to take a little grace from all of you. I reckon a great worship set would be one that ever, you know, each generation has a song that goes, I don't like that one very well. Well, we're not singing all these songs for people your age. It takes a grace to operate together as a family. So we're going to go there. Worship teaching style, all of that. We want you to like it, but mostly we want you to sing it and encounter it as a family. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we hit this last mark. It's going to take radical, intentional grace, and it's going to take an intentional and continual investment. We invest in things that are important to us. I read this article. Until the day it turns 18, your family spends about $300,000 on that child. It's a true story. Those of you that are expecting children, sorry to drop that bomb on you. You should have read the article. They got that statistic from the U.S. Ag Department. Now, I had three, three thoughts about this. One, what a wild estimate. Like, how do you come up with that? If you knew that when you're having kids, some of you are having kids, you're concerned about how you're going to pay a $5,000 hospital bill. You're going to laugh at that later. Second of all, the agricultural department? Like, that's where they get that information? I have many, so many questions about that. Thirdly, no matter how you evaluate it, you understand going into it, it's going to be expensive. Nobody has kids thinking, this is going to be cheap. And that's the one thing you write about. It's not. And nobody gets that child to 18, 19, or 20 and thinks, I wish we had my money back. You just don't. It's an investment. We all invest in what is important to us. Proverbs 22, 6 said, Start off children in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they're not returned. It's a long-term investment. Now, the generations are important to one another, and they all bring things that the other generation does not have, but the one thing the younger generation does not have, money. And so we invest in them in a unique way. In coming days, we're going to invest in our kids in a way we haven't invested. And some of you go, I don't even bring kids. Yeah, it's not a business, it's a family. We're going to invest in our time. I want to challenge some of you who 
It's been a nagging thing in your background. I know they need help in that kid's class, but if I just don't make eye contact, it doesn't have to happen. I'm begging you to invest in our kids. It's not about Sunday morning. It's about eternity. It says if we, do get, if we get this right as families, we change the arc of forever. Finally, we need to pray in this conviction of our hearts turning generation to generation. Because everything about our culture tells us that this is not how it's done. Everything about our culture says, narrow your focus to a narrow little group of people that you can serve really well and build a church that way. Everything about our culture says, generations have always fought and they always will. But we are looking to build an eternal kingdom that the bridge is a little tiny piece of. But that kingdom has every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping together. This message has been a kind of a stake in the ground because I want you to understand decisions that we make going forward. If we make a decision that you're like, well, people my age don't like that. People some age do like that. And we'll get around to making decisions you like too. But we're in this together. It's not a business. It's a family. And there are no people on the earth I would rather do family with than the ones that the Lord is gathering here. Stand with me. I just, just in the last closing minutes, I just have a, a sense. I'm going to ask a few of you if the Lord would, would, something about this has touched your heart. You say, I want to pray into this. I want to take just a couple of minutes and open the mic. We do this a lot as a church family. Families pray together. So as the worship team plays, if this is something that is on your heart, we encourage you to step to the mic. Pray 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, whatever the Lord lays in your heart. We want to ask the Lord to do this in our family. We'll open up the mic. Father, right now we ask that you would make us more than a business. And you would make us a family that cares for one another. Hear our hearts cry, Lord, that the hearts of fathers would turn to children and children to fathers. In Jesus' name would ask if some of you would just step up and pray into that for a moment. Don't be shy if this is something that's touched your heart. ask you that we look at the church through your eyes and yes let us treat it like family yes. like you always wanted it Lord it's messy being in a family but it's worth it yes heavy-hearted sometimes but it's worth it father teach us to invest in the next generation 
teach us not to be self-centered teach us to look up and look out teach us Lord Jesus to build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven don't let us build our own kingdoms don't let us come to the end of our life and said wow look at the kingdom that Walesi has built for that day it will be a failure let us look on that day and say look at the kingdom that we built together with the plans from heaven Jesus let us be family let us be Ohana Amen for a heart my heart to increase to to love on those that are younger than me and to love on those that are older than me Lord I ask that we would me being 40 would be a, a bridge for the older and younger generations to come together and to be um, I don't know just one that we can worship as one Lord, I ask that as this church puts a stake in the ground and says, this is who we are going to be, that regardless of the worship songs, regardless of the words coming out of pastor's mouth, that we would encounter you, whatever building we're in, whatever setting we're in, that this would be a place where we in one accord say, you are worthy, we love you, and I thank you for the body, I thank you for the family. Jesus, we just ask for that bridge. Yes. Bridge between generations. Yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. God, and we declare your grace is sufficient for us. No greater love has a man than to lay down his life for his friends, for his family. God, your grace is sufficient for me. God, your grace is sufficient for us. God, I ask that you would make us like the sons of Issachar understood the times and seasons and what to do in them God your banner over us is love yes your banner over us is love God I pray that we would know you as father as friend and as bridegroom Lord that you love us that you're for us you're not against us God, where we've missed it as fathers, would you forgive us? Where we've missed it in family, would you have mercy on us? Yes. And forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name, we plead your blood over us yes. to cleanse us from getting it wrong for this generational gap. Lord, where we don't understand each other and we throw rocks at each other would you forgive us for the words of our mouth that have torn down and the misunderstandings we've had in our hearts would you forgive us god 
and have mercy on us. Cleanse us, Lord. Wash us afresh and anew. In Jesus' name, we plead your blood over us to be family and to move forward in freshness. We need one another. We need you. Forgive us, God. In Jesus' name. Yes, Lord, and as one who stands maybe not quite in the middle of the ages, but somewhere in the middle, Father God, we just want to agree and declare. I want to say, Father God, to the ones ahead of me that we say yes and amen to the legacy that has been birthed in your life. As you turn around and look, we say yes and amen to taking the baton. I want to say yes and amen to the generation behind me that we see the destiny, we see the purpose, that we want to run with you. We want to, I love uh, the picture of a, a track meet, like when there's runners in a relay race, like the whole team wins when the relay team wins. When, when I'm a fan on the sidelines, when I'm in the race, Father God, or when I'm just on the team, help us to say yes and amen to the destinies of those around us. Help us to say yes and amen to the legacies of yes. those that have gone before us. Help us to take batons, Father God. Help us to encourage the ones around us, Father God. Help us to see the giftings that are um, stirred up and stirring up the giftings that are prevalent in this body, the giftings that are prevalent in this family, Father God. We just want to agree with who you've called the bridge to be. We want to agree with our place, Father God, and to everyone we say it's significant. You are valued. You are needed. I thank you for the aunties. I thank you for the grandmas. Yes. I thank you for the little ones, Father God, and we just ask that you would help us to all find our niche and our place in the family, Father God, for we thank you that you have placed us here for purposes um, greater than we could even envision. So I just say yes and amen in my heart, Father God, to family, to our rightful place, our rightful purpose, and to mending hearts, Father God. Would you today turn hearts of the fathers and the mothers to the sons? Would you turn hearts of the sons and the daughters to the mothers and the father? We declare, I declare as a mother that we need you, sons and daughters. And Father God, even as a daughter, I declare to the mothers and the fathers in this house that we need you. So turn our hearts to one another today. Let it be a marking and a, and a tent peg, a signpost, as Pastor said in Jesus' name. I just ask that you help our default to be grace, Lord. Yes. Rewrite our minds and our hearts that that is what we will default to. Grace upon grace, Lord. Help us with our expectations from the past to the future. Help us to sharpen our arrows, Lord, as you have designed and to restring our bows in the way that you would have us do so. So, Father, as a church family, we position our hearts towards one another in a way that shows exceptional grace. We thank you for placing us, God, as sons and daughters and not as employees and not as clients. We 
say yes to that model, we say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here this morning. Some of you were wondering how to invest in young people. If you talk to Jesse in the kids' class, he will tell you right now he could use your investment anytime soon. God bless you. Have a great weekend.